Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us for ASHP's Practice Journeys podcast. This podcast invites members to share their stories about their professional path, lessons learned, and how their experiences shaped who and where they are today. My name is Daniel Koba. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of HHP and the Vice President of Publishing at ASHP, and I will be your host today for the ASHP Practice Journeys podcast. In recognition of Pride Month, ASHP will host four podcasts with LGBTQ leaders in pharmacy throughout June. With me today is Alexander Gilmer. Thanks for joining us today, Alexander. Let's get started talking about your journey as a pharmacist who also happens to be a transgender man. So Alexander, I, I realize that there's so much that I actually don't know about you. So I thought maybe it would be great if we could start off talking about where you grew up and how you chose pharmacy as a profession. Absolutely. I actually grew up in New Hampshire and kind of took the long way to uh, pharmacy as a profession. I decided to go into zoology, thought I was going to be a zookeeper and uh, actually moved out to San Diego and worked for the Wild Animal Park in Escondido and realized that that wasn't really a sustainable career. I had moved out to San Diego both to work for the zoo, but also because uh, when I came out to my family and friends in New Hampshire, it didn't really go that well. And so essentially I packed up everything that I owned into my car and moved pretty much as far away from New Hampshire as you could get. And so I kind of was exploring who I was at that point and ended up working for Barnes and Noble, became a manager for them and realized that just wasn't enough for me and decided to go back to school. A friend of mine had become a pharmacist in the you know, meantime between when we graduated college and um, she had also gone back to pharmacy school and really loved it. And so I decided, all right, well, let me, let me check this out. Um, I love science and I love people. So let's see how this works out. I got a tech job. I think it was for CVS and loved my interactions with patients, loved my job and decided that that was, that was the way to go. And so decided to apply to pharmacy school. Where'd you end up going to school? I went to uh, Roseman University in uh, Henderson, Nevada. So then you made the move from San Diego to Nevada. Yes. Yep. And I, and I probably just pronounced that wrong. I guess it really should be pronounced Nevada, shouldn't it? Yes. Uh, it took me a while to get there. <laughs> but Nevada is a very uh, kind of almost new, northeast way to say it. But Tell us about your selection of a residency program and, and residency. So when I was younger, I went down to the Blue Ridge Parkway, which is part of North Carolina, as well as a number of other states, and fell in love with North Carolina and decided at that point that at some point I would live in North Carolina. And so when it was time to come to residency, there aren't uh, enough residencies for the amount of people that are applying for them. And so I couldn't necessarily limit where I was going. And so I thought this was the perfect time to go back to North Carolina. And so I actually applied all over the country. But my first residency interview at New Hanover a Regional Medical Center in Wilmington, North Carolina, was my favorite. I just clicked with the people 
and it was beautiful. There were birds on the runway. I know that doesn't sound big, but when you're on the West Coast, it's there's not as much nature uh, as evident as what you see over on the East Coast, and I missed the East Coast. So I just went from there. I was definitely nervous going to a Southern state as a trans person because I didn't know what that was going to be like. You, you know, you hear all these stories about how not open they are down there and all that kind of stuff. And certainly in the news, there's evidence of that. But what I found was eventually that once, when you talk to individuals, it's really a quite a different story. It's really interesting. It really leads into sort of our discussion today about your journey as a transgender man. And I think that you actually like to refer to it a bit differently, but is, so is it okay if we talk a bit about your journey as a transgender man? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, so I do identify a little bit differently than that. I identify as a man of trans experience and sometimes trans as well. I will use the word uh, transgender when it's kind of necessary to progress the uh, community forward, i.e., you know, if if there's questions on a survey and um, I'm trying to give the transgender community a voice, then I may identify as a transgender man. But for me, using the term transgender man kind of qualifies the type of man I am. And that doesn't necessarily work for me, um, especially because at this point in our world and our history, that qualifier tends to be a negative one um, and, and very othering. For me personally, now, I'm not speaking for the whole of the transgender community. There are probably some people that feel as I do. And then there are some people who absolutely feel they are a transgender man or a transgender female or woman and definitely use that term as a part of their kind of identity. For me, I am a man, but I think it's important to distinguish between the fact that I did not have a cis or cisgender, which means uh, kind of same as. So someone who is cisgender is someone who was identified as you know, say a male at birth and then continues to identify as a man for the rest of their life versus someone who's trans like me, who was assigned one gender at birth and identifies as another gender, really identifies as another gender wherever they decide in their life that that they realize that. When you have conversations with people, you know, throughout daily life, how far into the explanation do you have to go? And do you find yourself having to correct people a lot? What do you mean? Well, so if people refer to you in a way that you don't identify, do you do you end up having to sort of take a time out and explain to them some of the differences and even the differences in the way that you identify versus the way that maybe the larger trans community might identify? It depends. When I'm doing education, I do find that a lot. When I'm working also in some consulting work and stuff, um, I do find that. Day-to-day conversations, not as much, but a lot of the, some of the consulting work that I do is in establishing the EMR or the electronic medical record in a way that accommodates for people who have gender variant identities, um, you know, people who are trans or non-binary, as well as people who have, you know, sexual orientations other than straight or um, heterosexual. So a lot of what 
people like to do is they ask the gender question and list male, female, transgender male, transgender female, and then maybe something else. And explaining to people that many people in the trans community do not identify their gender as a transgender male or a transgender female. They identify their gender as male or female. They just happen to have a different history or a different experience than that of a cis person. For some people, that's very important, such as myself, because I think that does kind of inform how my masculinity interacts with the rest of the world and as well as how I kind of live in my masculinity. I have a different history than uh, someone who was identified male at birth and grew up and was raised that way. And so just reminding people that when asking gender identity questions, you know, what is your gender identity or how do you identify, realizing that you can't just, you know, look at the person and say, oh, okay, well, so they just told me that their sex assigned at birth was female, but I'm seeing someone who looks very male in front of me, so I'm just going to put them down as a transgender male and not even ask that question, especially because also you you know, someone who's non-binary who might have a gender identity that is outside of just male or female, which is kind of your binary. Um, They may identify as genderqueer or agender or any number of different genders that are out there. And you may not be able to tell that just by looking at them. And so really, it's just the same way that, you know, when you're identifying sexual orientation, you know, some people want to, you know, some people identify their sexual orientation as gay, or some people identify their sexual orientation as bisexual or pansexual or queer, a number of different ways. And you can't tell just by looking at that person or just by deciding that, oh, they just told me that their partner was the same gender as them, so they must be gay or, you know, that kind of thing. It's very important to recognize that people have different identities. Same thing along the lines of, of race, right? So often we, we just, you know, we look at the person in front of us, um, especially when we're kind of, you know, maybe performing an intake or something like that. And we decide what their race is without even asking them. Um, There are a number of people who would like to identify as, you know, multiple races or would like to identify as a race that you can't just look at them and say, oh, yeah, that they're they're black or they're whatever it is. And so it's really important for us to remember, especially as medical professionals, that our our identities are very important and to kind of check in with people as, as opposed to just assuming or just picking an identity for them. You know, Alex, it's interesting. One of the questions that, that throughout my life I've, I've gotten, and I imagine you've gotten the same one is, you know, when did you first know? I've heard that question so many times in my life. When did you first know you were gay? And uh, I'm wondering in terms of just sort of your thought processes and discovering your identity and if, if you could just talk about that I'm, I'm really trying to avoid actually asking the question of when did you first know but but to still understand a bit what your earliest experiences were were like I think it's a little bit different for the trans and non-binary community because there's even though the support is is definitely gaining. There's still so little support that so many people grow up with this idea that they're 
that there's something else going on, but they maybe can't identify it or maybe they can identify it, but everyone's telling them that they're incorrect or everything that they see is tells them that they're incorrect. And there's people, a lot of people who grew up without the, the verbiage. I mean, I'm, and I'm sure there's actually people who grew up without the verbiage about sexual orientation and that kind of thing. And, and so sometimes people don't identify it until a lot later in life, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's any less valid. For me personally, I knew very early on. My mom actually tells me that when I was a very, you know, about two, two and a half, maybe three or four, I was telling her that I was a boy every time she asked. I would argue with my brother about it, my little brother about it. And then, but then at some point I stopped identifying that way. I learned quickly that that is not, was not an appropriate way to identify, that nobody saw what I saw. And so even though I spent a lot of time daydreaming about the idea that my parents would take me to the doctor, they'd figure it out finally, and they'd take me to the doctor and get it fixed because doctors could fix anything. Then, you know, at some point I, I, I gave up on that, realizing that that just wasn't how it was. And so I stuffed it very far down and for a long time didn't think about it, but also didn't understand why I couldn't figure out how to be a girl, right? Like I would see everyone around me and they would know what to do and they would know how to walk and how to stand and how to do makeup and, you know, be interested in those things. And I just couldn't figure out why I just kept getting it wrong. And, and why I was never really, I didn't really identify with the women in my life, but didn't know how to formulate that into words. I think the biggest moment was when I went to New York Pride and was at the Dyke March and looked around at all these different type of women and all these, I mean, from the most feminine to the most masculine and realized that I did not fit and I had no idea what to do with that information. And so it wasn't until I came out to uh, Santa Cruz that someone suggested that that might be, you know, where you could maybe you were a boy um, or did you ever think that you were? And I, it was the first time I realized that that could be something that I was. And so even though I knew as a, as a child, I spent a long time not knowing until I finally had the verbiage and the, the vocabulary to actually have words for it. How old were you, Alex, when you went, went out to Santa Cruz? Uh, I was about 20. About twenty at that point, and and so you've you've had a lot of journeys, especially throughout your professional career. You're but you're you're moved to California, then your move or pharmacy school to Nevada, and then back to North Carolina for residency, and and now back to the Bay Area uh, for um, and I guess your move to North Carolina for both residency and um, several years of practice, uh, and then back to the Bay Area. Have you had to restart the journey every time or how's that, what's it been like? That is essentially what you do in, in some ways. And when I went to pharmacy school, I was not visibly trans and I was not interested in having people know. I, at that time for me personally, I was living with a lot of shame and a lot of fear Trans people and non-binary people make a lot of, there are a lot of reasons behind why they might not want to be visibly trans. And so this is just my story. That is that for me, I just was very ashamed of who I was and very fearful about 
people knowing and having it, you know, completely derail my career or having it just not be safe for me physically or my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife. And so it was very hard in pharmacy school because you, I mean, I essentially had to out myself every step of the, every step of the journey. Um, I didn't get a choice of doing that. It wasn't, you know, if I had to, I had to give in information about, you know, what my sex assigned to birth was, whether I had ever had any former names or other names, I had to get a physical every year. And every year I had a different doctor because it was just, you know, this, I didn't necessarily have a PCP there, a primary care practitioner, I should say. And so it was a different doctor every time that I had to explain. And, you know, and at one point I had an interaction with a doctor who essentially kind of freaked out a little bit and didn't know what to do with the information. And so decided that he still needed to check me for a hernia, even though he knew that my sex assigned at birth was female and that body style, I guess, uh, doesn't develop hernias in the same way that someone who's assigned male at birth does. And so he, you know, had me strip down and get into a Johnny, invited a female nurse into the room because I had to have someone of the same gender in the room. And uh, the female nurse was like, I you could tell that she had no idea why she was in there and then proceeded to put me through, you know, a hernia check, which was very hard for me to, to deal with. And, but I didn't, I couldn't say anything because what if he failed my physical? What would happen when, when I get kicked out of school? Cause I didn't do the physical well or, or whatever. I think that's something that we definitely have to think about just kind of a segue into the pharmacy career as in general is, is why are we doing these physicals at schools? Um, I think it's one, one thing to, you know, kind of make sure that people are healthy, but are we doing these physicals to, you know, give people a chance to have a physical when they could make that decision for themselves? Or is there another reason that we're doing these physicals? Cause it didn't really affect the way that I did my job or how good of a student I was. And it can be, you know, somewhat ableist in a lot of ways, as well as anyone who's trans or non-binary, you know, or even anyone who has any trauma, it could be really hard to, to have to go through a physical every year. But that being said, I wasn't out there. And so I did end up coming out to a couple people because I had to. They were really uh, pretty supportive, actually, but I still was just living in this kind of fear place. Um, additionally, when I went out to North Carolina, again, I was still very afraid. But at some point, I decided that if I'm going to live, like truly live, I needed to live and come from an authentic place. And for me, that meant that I needed to be out. That's not the case for all trans people. There are many trans people that absolutely live from an authentic place and don't feel the need to, to be out. Um, but for me personally, that was something that I needed. And so I ended up coming out to my entire pharmacy department who all knew me for three years prior to that. And for the most part had no, no idea what my history was. And I found that instead of becoming the talk of the town, which is what I was worried about, I developed deeper relationships with my colleagues and more authentic relationships in my, with my colleagues in which both of us were practicing vulnerability and, and that kind of thing and really 
opening up the type of conversations that we were having and uh, discussions that we were having. And so it just kind of changed everything for me. Now I'm in a totally new place and it's the time of COVID. So I'm meeting all these people with masks on if they're even coming in. Many of us are, you know, many people are working from home. And so it's kind of like, you know, I want to live an open life, which I, you know, eventually I will, but how do I come out, I guess, especially because there's still that kind of fear there. Even though I'm in the Bay Area, which is like a lot of times considered basically the the mecca of trans experience kind of thing, um, I it's there's still just based on history that little bit of fear that lays there. Obviously, if I was worried about that at all, I wouldn't be on this podcast. But and again, I'm definitely planning on coming out to people. But it's something that you have to kind of work in. You can't just kind of show up and be like, "Hey, so I'm trans. Let's good get that over with and." you know, kind of move on. Well, you know, it's really interesting, Alex. I, I, I didn't expect to hear you say that. I honestly thought that, uh, I guess I presumed uh, incorrectly or that going to the Bay Area, it would be much more, I guess, automatic is a, a term you could use. And so it's very interesting to hear you you say that. I, it, I have to say that my own experiences as, as a gay man, when I started that process of coming out to people, it was very similar in terms of the depth of the relationships and how they change. I imagine that your experiences as a man of trans experiences, that, that it's probably affected the way that you interact with your patients. Is that, is that true? I think absolutely. I come at it from a very different perspective. I think had I grown up a cis person. I'm in a marginalized community. And so even though I'm white and I'm male, and I'm definitely seen as a white male in this world for almost all the time um, and have those privileges, absolutely. I come from a different perspective. And for me personally, how in the world could I I guess for me, how in the world could I discriminate against other people when they've gone through stuff that's often worse than than the stuff that I've gone through? And so it just gives me a very different perspective on on the people in front of me. I've also lived a lot of life experience and been economically in a lot of different places as well as mental health wise. And so I just have this breadth of experience that I don't think I would have had I not grown up a trans person. So I'm able to connect with patients in, I think, a much deeper and richer way than I think everybody is. And it's easy for me to to kind of let down some of that vulnerability and be able to identify with them. I think so often as in the medical profession, there's this barrier between the medical professional and the and the patient. And some of that is just the way that medical professions are seen in this country and our automatic deference to, to medical professionals. But some of it is also this idea that you have to keep yourself separate from the patient and you can't be vulnerable with them and you can't, you know, show any kind of weakness because then they won't listen to you or, or whatever else we've, we've taught our medical professionals. And I find that that's simply not how I how I operate and how I connect with people. 
And so I personally, I, I love interactions with patients. And I think that vulnerability that I have developed is a big part of that. So do you find the profession, do you find pharmacy open to LGBTQ people? I think yes and no. You know, pharmacy in general tends to be, they're, they're both medical as well as a lot of academia as well. And those two kind of facets of society tend to be more liberal and more open. That being said, there is very, still very little information about the LGBTQ community. Very frequently, we're not taught about the community in school. Um, we're not taught about, you know, interactions with the community. And, and so people, you know, all of a sudden they have a, a gay patient or they have a trans patient and they have no idea what to do. And it's like everything that they know about working with patients flies out the window and, and we start worrying about offending people. Whereas had we given, you know, our pharmacists the baseline knowledge and, and some experience prior to that time, then perhaps the interaction would be a lot different. And so I think that pharmacists in general, uh, especially individuals one-on-one, -on -one, are quite open to the LGBTQ community. But as a profession, I don't think that we have done a great job of educating about those communities. And so if you're not educated about, like if, you're, if your community and your, your brethren is not educated about, then it still can feel very alienating. I remember being in school and, you know, noticing that, oh, we're going to have transgender healthcare on our, you know, curriculum. That's awesome. I'm so excited to find out whether, you know, all of the stuff that I've had to teach myself is, you know, completely correct or if there's more information that I can get and, you know, that kind of thing. And I was really excited to learn about the trans community. And at that time, the education was essentially there are trans people and they take hormones. And that was about it. I think it's further, I think it's developed from there because there are some actually pretty progressive people in the trans, um, working with the trans community at Roseman. And there's now uh, an LGBTQ student group, which is awesome. But at the time, they're just, you know, I was disappointed. And I think that's still the case, uh, you know, across a lot of schools and medical schools in general, not just pharmacy. Pharmacy is not unique in that way at all. So it's, you know, yes and no, I think it's open to the LGBTQ community. My personal interactions with people have been amazing. As a whole, though, we, I don't think we educate enough. I think it's improving, absolutely, but I still don't think it's enough. So when you think about the student or the resident, that next generation that's entering the profession today, what advice do you have for them? I think first and foremost, you need to be true to yourself. And so whatever that means, if that means that you are comfortable being out, then so be it. If you're not comfortable being out, then, you know, don't judge yourself on that. Don't, you know, feel this, I guess, guilt yourself into, into you know, living that truth. However, be, that being said, if you are able to be out and that is something that's comfortable for you and authentic for you and, and everything, then the more out people we can have in the profession, the more we're going to push it forward and the more we're going to learn about these patients, because it's not just about us, it's also about our patients. We're doing our patients a disservice by not 
you know, teaching about the community, but how do you know to teach about the community if you think that nobody's out there kind of thing. And it's often the marginalized class that is the strongest at pushing things forward. And so I think if you can be out, be out. Don't guilt yourself into being out. It's absolutely appropriate to not be out. It's absolutely valid and, and everything to not be out. And you can still advocate for the community and teach if you'd like, even if you're not out, as well as our allies. Um, our allies are really going to be the ones that move the needle. So how are you and your wife going to celebrate pride? And in so many ways, it's, it's really different this year, isn't it? But are you going to have a chance to celebrate? It is very different. And I'm, uh, I'm a little bummed. Uh, this is the first time I'm in San Francisco since I was uh, 21. And I was excited about celebrating pride um, in San Francisco, but that is not the case. However, um, there is a global pride that's going to be happening as well as an online global pride, as well as the online um, San Francisco pride. And honestly, pride's probably across the country and across the world. So that's kind of a cool thing is that you don't necessarily have to travel to, you know, wherever to, to participate. Um, you can actually participate from your own home. So that really opens up the access to a lot more people. And so I think that's probably something that we're going we're gonna to do is really kind of do the online celebration. We haven't really talked about it. We've honestly been, uh, we just got here. So <laughs> it's all been about the move and, and new job start and all that kind of stuff uh, recently. But I love well, one of my favorite months. So, <laughs> Well, Alex, it's been so great to, to talk with you today. And I just hope it's the, it's not the first, but I hope it's just one of many conversations that you and I have the opportunity to have and that we can invite you in many ways to share your experiences with the, the ASHP community. But that's all the time we have today. And I want to thank Alexander Gilmer for joining us today to discuss his journey as a pharmacist who also happens to be a man of trans experience. And join us here at ASHP Official and the Practice Journey podcast as we learn about how LGBTQ pharmacy leaders seek out, grow, and evolve during their careers. Thanks so much, Alexander Gilmer. Thank you. And I hope it would be okay to just let people know that if they do want to reach out and they have any questions or they want to discuss more about how we can take care of the trans and non-binary community, uh, they can reach out to me at alexandergilmer.com or at alex at alexandergilmer.com uh, as an email, just in case anybody is, is interested in uh, continuing the conversation. Thanks so much, Alexander. That's incredibly helpful and I think will certainly be helpful to many pharmacists, both ASHP members and those who aren't. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.